This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Uh, my name is Hannah Garibaldi, and I'm a PhD student here in the Film and Media Department Studies Department at UCSB. It's my great pleasure, seriously, to introduce Daria Zook, the director of Crystal Swan. Um, I also, again, want to, before we get started, um, thank Sarah Lerner, who's my dear friend and fellow graduate student, and she helped me devise these questions and organize this event. Um, so to get started, uh, Daria, Crystal Swan is your first feature film. Uh, can you describe the arc of your relationship with film as it developed from the previous short films and projects you've undertaken until this point and how this story emerged for you? Hannah, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, you know, I wish, I wish I was physically in Santa Barbara. I have, um, I have so much love for, for Santa Barbara, you know, since I grew up in Soviet Union, watching uh, post-Soviet Union, watching Santa Barbara, the soap opera. We all had this like uncanny fascination uh, with, with, with this town, <clears throat> with this particular town. Um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, I never thought I was going to be uh, a filmmaker actually growing up. Uh, I was so consumed by the changes in the society. Um, I, uh, I was a teenager in Belarus, just one of the post-Soviet republics and, uh, Soviet Union fell apart when I was 11. And, uh, um, we had such, um, an avid conversation about economics that I thought that maybe I'll follow this other path. <laughs> it's not going to be storytelling. It's going to be something altogether different. And uh, my first education, you know, my first, uh, I, I have my first diploma I, as a bachelor. Um, I, I studied for, for economics uh, though, like, during that process, I was taking electives and I discovered film and it was like something, you know, it was like love from first sight. I was like, okay, this is what I have to do, you know. And of course, it took me another um, another decade, another 10 years to figure out how do you actually pursue this career. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I always dreamt of coming back to my hometown in Minsk because I, um, I was 16. Uh, I went to Northern California to study. I was a high school senior on one of the exchange programs that was they were so popular in late nineties. Um, and then I went to college here in America. Um, and that's kind of, uh, you know, that's, that's what formed me as an individual, you know, the, these two, the East meets West. <laughs> wow. That's, that's so interesting that your degree was in economics because you're so, your film is so accomplished. So that's really impressive that you've made that move. Um, Okay, well, I mean, it, it's great. And I know that you've made a lot of short films as well. Um, my colleague, Sarah Lerner, I know has watched a lot of them. Um, oh, thank you so much. They're yeah. so perfect. You know, they, they, they're like things that, you know, you're trying out, trying out this, trying out that. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, you know, I did go to film school and, and I really love my film school. It's Columbia um, School of the Arts. We have an MFA program uh, here in New York. And just an FYI, I'm self-quarantining out just outside of New York and Long Island. So you could see the, the green here <laughs> okay it's, it's okay. All, all american <laughs> um, but yeah the film school like that's how i made a lot of different types of work um and of course i just didn't think like there will be an opportunity for me to to really go go back because i was splitting my time between moscow and minsk um and still having a base in new york um 
and split my time and actually go and do my first feature film uh, back in my home country. It just seemed like very, a very um, kind of an impossible task, I have to say, in the, in, on, in the beginning stages of this project. Um, but it just something is like I had so much passion, like there was just such a drive that just something, you know, was something so personal for me in in this film that I was like, okay, whatever it takes, like I'll talk to everybody who can help me out with with, with this project. And uh, and I have to say, you know, of course, it was a joy. It was a joy to make. Yeah, well, speaking of going back to Minsk, I, I know that the first time I watched this film, I did not know much about Belarus. And since I've learned a lot more, um, but I, I, I thought it'd be great if you could maybe describe a little bit of the historical context for the film um, and specifically the kind of complicated Belarusian political situation in which this film takes place. Um, so Belarus is a small Soviet republic uh, that, uh, you know, Soviet Union fell apart. And so all these republics, all the satellite republics became uh, independent countries. Belarus has, uh, is interesting because it's like stuck right in between Russia and Poland. So it's like right on the border with NATO, uh, essentially. And Russia, of course, claimed as an ally very quickly because they needed it to be, you know, pro-Russian. Um, so what happens, you know, I, I, of course, I chose a period that I myself had so many feelings about, um, I was still in Minsk when, uh, you know, when the film takes place, it's 1996. So I felt like I really knew what I was talking about, but it was also like the most hopeful time um, uh, that, that I thought of like in Belarusian history. So what happens is in 91, the Belarus becomes an independent country. In 94, a new, a new democratically elected president comes to power. And then in 96, when the film takes place, uh, we lose our democracy and it becomes uh, an autocracy, it becomes a dictatorship because he fires off the Supreme Court. So so there's like a stage, you know, it's almost like a year where, you know, there were like two different paths that you could take and suddenly you take a particular one. Um, and of course, it happens very much in the background in the film. And uh, uh, But as I was working on it, I found more and more inspiration in in this particular year because, the, you know, like as you see some of the, the, the demonstration that you see really did happen. And I really did address, like, you know, the film does happen on April 26, which is when Chernobyl happened. Uh, but many years later, there was a demonstration, you know, um, sort of uh, mem uh, memorializing the victims of, of Chernobyl that turned... Um, um, turned political and and people were people were arrested and it was like the first sign of the oppressive government, you know. But now jump 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 back to uh, twenty twenty. It's so fascinating that we're having this uh, discussion right now because this actually the same thing that's happening right now in Belarus. But it you know it took twenty twenty four years for the same kind of thing to happen. You know when there's like a huge awakening and people are on the streets. Um, uh, and our, many people are arrested and yet everybody is, you know, just speaking what they, I, I felt like in 96 was the last time where people of Belarus spoke up. Um, uh, but then, and then kind of, you know, the, 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 you know, political leaders crushed them down and it was like, you know, in a certain, um, it followed a certain route. Uh, and it, it's, it's only right now that I feel the same energy that, that, that I felt when I was 16, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 40 right now. It just feels like, you know, I lived a couple of uh, lifetimes and, you know, and maybe we have to, there's something we have to thank coronavirus for, <laughs> you know, it's like this amazing uh, awakening of, of, um, 
of civil rights movements all over the world. There, there's really, really like a huge push to really think about the world that, that we want to live in, mm-hmm. um, which, which, which just makes me so excited. Yeah, and that's so interesting. And my next question was actually going to be about how you thought this film related to the present moment, because I know we have a very big election coming up um, with Lukashenko. Um, and so, I mean, you kind of answered that question, which is great. I mean, it, it's it's interesting, too, because Velia, you know, if we transported her to the present moment, if it's, you know, has that same kind of resonance as it did back then, maybe she'd be making TikToks or something instead oh of listening. God. Yes, yes, <laughs> listening totally. To, you, you know, know little total Zoomer. You yeah. know, it, um, of course, I couldn't have made this film if I said, like, okay, this is present-day Belarus. Mm-hmm. Um you know, this allowed me, the fact that I, I, I said it, you know, in the 90s allowed me a little bit of a buffer between me and unspoken censorship in the country um, that I could say like, oh, look, like this is not really, it's not really about right now. Uh, it's really about before before we started this new, new journey uh, that we're on. Um, uh, but of course, it touches upon all the same all the same subjects. We have a huge brain drain. We, we a lot of young people that are talented leave um, leave the country annually. Um, I mean, we have a, like a negative population growth. Our population declined since then. You know, it's um, there. All, all these things are so very present, but it, they're present beyond Belarus. You know, they're also very relevant to Ukraine, to Russia to Georgia where, where this film did really well because it just spoke to, you know, like the questions that young people face is like, should I build my life here? Should I build my life elsewhere? And that's definitely something Velia faces in the course of this film. Um, So moving a little bit into the production itself, um, I wanted to ask, you know, in your own work, what's the kind of artistic lineage that you feel most connected with uh, politically and aesthetically and how has this shaped your approach? You know, it's such a um, such a good question, but I don't know if any artist, any filmmaker, really, you know, they approach um, <laughs> their journey, but they are like, oh, I like this, I like this, but you're you're never that analytical about like things that you oh like that that uh, went into your process. But of course, uh, now that I lived with this film for you know, we've been showing it to people for, we had a, we literally two years ago, we had a premiere at Carlo Vivari. So I spoke to a lot of people and kind of saw it through their eyes. Through their eyes, I saw uh, uh, both Eastern European influences and both American Indie influences, you know? And so, so, so it's just such an exciting journey to recognize yourself through the eyes of others uh, because you kind of just follow your intuition. I, I mean, you're really just like, what does this story want how does a story want to be told? You know, like I, I, I always rely on the script and I just look for, for ideas from, from the material itself. Uh, but um, I, I kind of, um, of course, of course some of the influences are, ref- are reflected on screen. And, um, you know, since I did um, spend my twenties in New York, I, um, I really love Jim Jarmusch and I love Susan Sadelman with Desperately Seeking Susan, you know, and just so, just bizarrely happened that Alina also looks like <laughs> Madonna, which was so not expected. It was just like came, it just landed in my lap and I'm like, okay, I just have to use it, you know, and I have to, you know, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I really didn't have it in the back of my mind. I was like, maybe I should rewrite a script for her, but I really just didn't have time to do it. <laughs> so I just had to stick to like, okay, this is, this is what it's going to be. Um, you know, so, so they're like this American indie films that I really love. Um, uh, but then also there are 
Eastern European filmmakers that that um, um, that I kept watching and rewatching. Um, and it's not it's not. I mean, I know when we think of Eastern Europe, we think Tarkovsky, but that's obviously like you could see that uh, my film is is not about long take, um, and it's much more. You know, it's it's and it's more humorous, I would say. So I, I mean, I think I really enjoyed uh, films by, for instance, like Kira Muratova, uh, who is a, a Jewish Ukrainian filmmaker um, that that worked in Odessa and just recently died. Um, I wish her films were more more widely accessible in in America. Um, 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 so, so it's like I have this mixture of East and West <laughs> that I'm trying to make sense of myself. You know, it's like it's very hard for me to place uh, to like clearly place myself in the, you know, uh, in the hierarchy. Um, so I, I, Hannah, I rely on you <laughs> to say to say what you see. Um, you know, of course, I loved Ida. You know, and that and that's sort of we kind of thought about it. But to tell you the truth, when my um, director of photography came and uh, and she's Brazilian born. Uh, Mexican-based uh, filmmaker, uh, Carolina Costa. You know, we um, uh, we watched Lucrezia Martel together, together, which is an Argentinian filmmaker. Like, we just was like, okay, what do you like? What did you respond in the past ten years? And we came up like we were were thinking about some ideas about the camera movement, um, which is you know just not something you would think right away uh, when you watch Crystal Swan. But yeah, it did come in into our conversation. Yeah, I mean, that is something that, you know, I really noticed watching this film the second time through, especially was how carefully the camera moved at certain moments, and it was static at other moments. Um, so you can tell it's very carefully constructed. Um, so it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, speaking of, you know, the kind of um, background of the different people, you know, that are working, that worked on this film, um, also taking note of the fact that this was a co-production uh, amongst numerous countries, um, with support coming especially from Belarus Film and Nashkino. Um, I was just wondering if you can describe the film's production within Belarus, and especially its associ association with Belarus Film Studios. I mean, it wasn't an easy uh, collaboration to put together uh, because we have a character who is obviously not something that the regime, a more conservative regime, would support. They're very careful. You know, like I sent them the script a couple of years before I actually went into production on this film and it was a very cold uh, reception. And uh, and then, you know, and then like when I already had some support, for instance, I had a German fund supporting me and some independent, you know, Vice Films, surprisingly, uh, gave me a little bit of the starting money for, for this film because they believed in believed in the story believed in me as a director you know like other people want to jump on so they were definitely the last ones to come in um and then yes at that point when they knew it was going into production they wanted to be a bigger part of it but it was like it was just a little bit too late i mean partly it was also you know i uh, I have an amazing Belarusian producer who's also an independent producer who's based there, who does work, who makes work. And, you know, working with state funded um, studios is just, it's just a whole other, it's a complicated, um, complicated thing because they're like, uh, they're very bureaucratic. There are many, many hoops to jump through. Um, so we were lucky that it was on our terms, you know, that it wasn't, the, they didn't invest the majority into the film. 
I mean, what happens with countries that want to control content, um, and specifically right now in Belarus, of course, there's like such push to control any kind of media uh, with upcoming election in, in August. You know, they have like the new Ministry of Information, you know, that just like, you know, is arresting Telegram bloggers. And, and uh, there's just such a desire to control um, what ends up on screen that that you really benefit from having uh, international international co-production because then you have a group of people coming together and you have more than one opinion on on what what has to has to end up you know in the, in 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 the film at the end um i have i do have to say that when we were releasing the theatrical version of the film um i did have to take out this last scene where she um you know she is just in a i literally couldn't show people walking down the street that was already for them hugely controversial so so they they just like re, they refused and it wasn't that it just went to the censorship it was a private distributor who's like I, i'm not gonna risk it I'm not gonna put it out like this like you have to take this last you know i don't know it's like 30 seconds you know 20 seconds out and that's that's the scene with the protest right when they're that's on the, the bus scene with the protest okay. yeah yeah okay. even when i was filming it uh my belarusian producer was like the he was like that's it you have to schedule for the last day <laughs> um for the last day uh, of the shooting period because you could literally be arrested and and at least we thought that like okay it's the last day i'm arrested but at least i have the rest of the film in the can <laughs> you know of course like me it's funny because i, I just i i uh, you know i um, those things you know they happened but they happened in 2010 so it's like people kind of forget and you know now it's happening again and then you're like oh wow i do remember like like that is like a very much a reality but then you so quickly forget that you know your phones could be tapped or it's really it's really a threat um that you know and of course you know i travel so much and i live in new york and i and i shoot here and i and, I, and i've made films in in berlin and tel aviv and that to me is like oh no i live in the in my mind i'm in a much more open world than than really than really i am you know in 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 belarus where where the, you can expect anything you, you know it's it's not it's not <laughs> Well, I'm glad you're okay <laughs> and everything worked out. But so, um, so good. <laughs> I mean, that brings up another question about, you know, where this film was screened. Was it actually screened in Belarus? And, and did censorship get involved with the screenings that were the local screenings? So, yeah, so we cut out this last 20 seconds. And, um, you know, you saw the version that says specifically says 96. Uh, to release in Belarus, we just had to say 90. So so we pretended like that this was a time before the president that is currently, you know, it's been in power in 26 years before he came to power. Um, and that um, actually invited a lot of criticism in Belarus. We were in theaters for a month. It was like, it was the most successful Belarusian film, independent wow. Belarusian film that wasn't... Uh, to, to date, <laughs> a lot of people saw it. It was really, really exciting. Um, but invite a lot of criticism because, of course, it says it's not, you know, the beginning of 90s and the mid 90s, they actually differed a lot. You know, like people's, uh, you know, how people dressed, how people talked, you know, 91 where it's total chaos. Um, 96 is already some kind of sense of, uh, you know, she would already know a little bit more about America. She would actually have this desire to go. And um, it's also really tied to my experience with house music and this subculture and the underground culture, which is so important to me because it was like so much, uh, 
so Western looking, Western forward looking, you know, it was like, wow, this idea of freedom, uh, you know, that definitely didn't exist in the beginning of the 90s. It definitely came into being in 95, 96. So, so when I was like, oh, I, ch I changed my film for, to show in Belarus and then I'm criticized that it's not, it like, doesn't look like 90s. <laughs> it was, uh, it was really, it was really painful, but you know, it was, I mean, at the end it was fine. I think, you know, we were lucky that it was a year and a half ago, um, because it was like that period, you know, there's no election. Like the, it was like suddenly maybe an opening and maybe a more liberal opening and maybe an opening of hope. Uh, but it also was in theaters in in Russia, in Ukraine, in in, in Canada. It, it was it was a really crazy, wonderful, wonderful journey. Yeah, and Santa Barbara, which is where. And Santa are. Barbara. Yes. Um, so moving on, because um, unfortunately we have to move on to the film itself, because I know this historical background and context is so fascinating, but I also want to hear about the film. So um, one of my big questions was, you know, you used a 4-3 aspect ratio, which is, you know, different than I think a lot of people are accustomed to in terms of it, it you have the pillar boxes on the side. Um, so I was just curious if you could explain a little bit about the reasoning behind that choice. It's a very clear choice in terms of the production. It's interesting, you know, um, the choice came kind of late in the, in the game, um, and it was, um, uh, it was or organically came to me from the fact that I was planning to use a lot more archival footage than I ended up using, and it started, now you see some archival footage in the, in the titles, but uh, there was a whole, uh, it was much bigger scene in the beginning and at the end with archival footage that was originally, the footage was shot in VHS, uh, and it was originally four by three. So I started to think like, what if the rest of the film, you know, doesn't, doesn't change, um, um, and also stays, stays in the same, stays in the same box. Um, and so like I, I just started thinking about it and started exploring it. Um, and I was really happy, you know, a lot of my <laughs> co-producers just, just were not, uh, not in production with me in Belarus because Belarus is just like too crazy for them to go to. <laughs> um, so I was there by myself and my DP and I was like, oh, let's, let's do it in four by three. Of course, she was in shock <laughs> uh, in, in the first couple of days. And then she's like, wow, this is so exciting. This actually, uh, you know, when we started shooting, it's like, I cannot possibly imagine, um, imagine it to, to be any other aspect ratio. Um, of course, like, of course, I know Andrea Arnold's work. And of course, I've heard her talk about like a perfect portrait frame, um, and Wuthering Heights, she she talked about four by three, and and how you know that really worked for one main character, one main protagonist. And and you know, as I started, you know, like that idea came to me, and I'm like, wow, this really works because, you know, she's so claustrophobic in this world. Is in, in in this like she's like a bird who wants to get out of this cage, and this could really work. You know, when you have ideas, but then when they really work for the story, and they really help un to underline this this metaphor that you're that's growing through through all the dramatic uh, uh, turning points. Um, that's when you really think like, okay, why is this like a worthy idea to explore? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the formal elements really mimic the kind of internal state of the character, which I think is something that's so powerful in this film. Um, I, I've worked a lot with archival footage, so that's actually interesting. That was um, your initial choice, because that's what I was wondering if it was to mimic the archival, but it you know, structurally fits with the narrative itself as well. Um, so moving on, I mean, you mentioned house music, and um, I... 
I wanted to ask, you know, house music, especially the Move Your Body from Marshall Jefferson, uh, plays a very significant role in the film, uh, structuring Velia and spectators' relationship to Belarus, the United States, and to Velia's sense that she belongs elsewhere. Uh, how did you imagine the narrative and political role that house music performs for Velia and the viewers? So, you know, I spent sleepless nights <laughs> in between my editing sessions looking for music. And I have to say, of course, I, I, uh, I was a raver way back in the day. When I, <laughs> that for me, that's a super personal journey, especially through this music. I was like, okay, the music should, should support, you know, the film itself um, speaks little. Like you just meet this character, you meet the protagonist who says, I want this, you know, I have this dream. Um, um, you know, how do you support it? Because there's, you know, how do you explain her, her, her passion? And I thought that like, okay, I could support it with music, that it supports the story. Um, so these sleepless nights, you know, I, I dig back into my <laughs> old, uh, old DJ archives. And, um, and I, I, you know, I knew, um, you know, there was like, I only had two options. It was like either Detroit Techno or Chicago House. Because <laughs> they could be, you know, tied to America and tied to her dream and tied to her obsession. Because I definitely met people on, um, you know, gr growing up who were who were obsessed with this kind of thing. You know, they, they would be like obsessed with British Britpop or obsessed with American music. And they're like, there was a lot of imagination because we, we they couldn't afford to travel. There's a lot of imagination that went into their feeding their obsessive dreams. Um, so it turns out that uh, not a lot of uh, house music um, is still, um, I mean, I love it, right? But a lot of it is very repetitive and it's very hard to use in the film. <laughs> and there are like very few tracks that are, that actually develop and they're the tracks that were iconic, um, that, that, I, that I felt like, wow, that, that like I really wanted, wanted to, to be in the film because you know what it speaks it speaks to the characters want you know i want i want freedom of course she interprets it in a, in a little bit like through her own uh, rose glasses obviously that community was uh, you know we um, you know all the freaks all the lgbt you know all the trans people it was like you know if you're different you belong to us and that's what they were manifesting you know she interprets it you know a different kind of freedom uh, but also sort of ties to her freedom of self-expression you know in a way um, so I just thought that like when, when I, when I uh, reacquainted myself with these tracks, I'm like, wow, this is, this is exactly even, even the, even the lyrics of it supports, supports the film. Um, it's, it's kind of, so <laughs> a lot of these artists recording in late eighties, beginning of the nineties, you know, they, they, um, they, they were quite, quite poor and they were experimenting and um, apparently there's one label tracks records that's based in Chicago bought out all, all their rights. So there's one person who owned, who just unfortunately and uh, rest in peace. He just died from coronavirus. Um, um, but the, the owner of tracks records, uh, but he had the rights to all of these iconic tracks. And we went through a prolonged negotiation because <laughs> he's like the film from Belarus. So, you know, why? Wow. That's, that's so interesting. I mean, I, yeah, the music is so, you know, evocative, particularly again, at strategic moments, you know, when she's packing and she's just, you know, rocking out and moving her body. Right. But moving yeah. Body, yeah. Yes. Of course I wanted something that like that she could really listen to. So I had, I was stuck in like 94. Okay. Maybe early 94, 95, but not, not later than 96 that I was trying to find something. Uh, 
there is one track in the film that that is um, a more contemporary track uh, that I fell in love with, and I just you know I was like, okay, this is some artistic freedom here. I <laughs> I'm not a documentarian, but uh, but generally I was trying to you know even the music that uh, she's running down and the music where her mom speaks over the music that's on the end of the film was also written in '94. Wow, yeah, it's so interesting. I mean. Yeah, moving, unfortunately, we have to move on again a little bit. Um, I'd love to talk about house music all day. Um, but I, I think, you know, one of the things before we move on to audience questions um, that I think is really important to ask in relation to this film um, is particularly the sequence regarding sexual assault. Um, so Velia's strong rebuke of sexual violence uh, to Kostya, um, the young boy um, in the household, following her rape frames her journey uh, in the film. Christo's film is one of the first films um, we've seen wherein a protagonist condemns sexual violence with such strength that it almost breaks the fourth wall, meaning it looks, I mean, for those that maybe aren't as aware of film parlance, means they look directly at the screen as if they're looking at the viewers. Um, Belia is speaking to Kostya, but she's also speaking to spectators. Uh, for you, what does this moment mark on Belia's journey? Um it's so exciting that you felt this moment so viscerally. It means a lot to me that, that you describe it this way. Um, I have to say this moment was often uh, polarizing uh, in kind of the way different people of different gender um, viewed this film in, in Eastern Europe, but in particular, we made this film, Helga and I, uh, Helga, my brilliant screenwriter that we collaborated with, who is also a poet and a filmmaker herself. She made some wonderfully complex uh, documentary films about Anna Akhmatova and Shostakovich and is very connected to, to Eastern Europe, even though she lives in New York. Um, we made it before Me Too movement. So that thing just, it just wasn't, like it wasn't uh, prevalent in our minds, but but somehow as we were talking about our experiences growing up, um, she grew up in Moscow, I grew up in Minsk. Um, there was this sense that there's like a constant danger that you encounter, you know, that, that we couldn't ignore, you know. Um, and if we were to really imagine what to, what would be like for Vela to go to a small town uh, and be this, like, uh, you know, uh, um, a very, very... Cosmopolitan. Very yeah, cosmopolitan yeah. and just be so brave, you know, she wouldn't counter aggression towards her. Like it just wouldn't be just like verbal aggression. I mean, she, it's almost like I understand Stepan, you know, he, she, in his point of view, she's almost asking for it. Um, um, so, 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 so it just came from a really personal place, um, that, that, that pushback, um, um, and, uh, you know, I, I have encountered some, 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 uh, you know, some men being so upset with what they saw. They're like, that's not true. This is not how it would happen. This never happened. And then, you know, my mother who never, for instance, uh, talked about anything like that happened. She's a journalist and she travels to a lot of smaller places and, uh, interacts with all kinds of people. She's like, she finally broke down after the premiere of the film when she did tell me, oh, wow, you know, I've had a situation like that. Um, I would say the, the 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 rates of rape are really high. They're just not reported. Um, it's just something like you know, it's kind of the victim blaming a place like it's your own fault. Um, um, so so there was a it was an interesting discussion to raise, but I, I just almost felt like in in this situation it couldn't have 
turned the other way. The story couldn't have gone any other way because he's, yes, he's friendly and yet he has this aggression. He just came out of army where he also was a victim. So, so just like all led there for me, even though I know it's, it seems like, you know, when you don't read between the, it just, it's like you want to believe he's not this guy. Um, but that's something that is so, it's so part of the culture and so like, okay, you know, yes. Okay. You know, she, uh, um, it's almost like just dis- discounted. So, so it's an interesting process. You know, that scene that you're talking about where she almost ta- breaks the fourth wall, you know, it's actually really hard uh, to direct Alina uh, because she, uh, uh, you know, there's such a thin line, you know, de- you know, I know, I know that you think, <laughs> you think you raped her, but a lot of my, <laughs> a lot of my male viewers are like, I really want to see her rape her. And then me and Carolina, of course, like we did not, we're not interested in showing it. That's pretty obvious mm-hmm. to us. <laughs> um, so it's like an interesting thin line to, to, to walk. Um, and of course it just underlines this whole gender divide between in, interpretation and how how women and men exist in um in the film in the in the in the in the context of the film you know you see a lot of women uh you know you see the 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 one you see the father smoking you see the father looking but he doesn't do anything but you you see women at the post office you see women you know helping you go to the uh, selling you a bathroom ticket you um it's just a lot more active you know and i only realized that after um after I made the film, that there was like the, the, such a such a push, you know, such a gender divide, um, um, and it was quite a feminist film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, but I think that the that discussion she has with Kostya and the fact that he leaves with her at the end is so important, you know, because he's he's getting taken out of that situation um, where there's these very, you know, strict gender kind of um, patriarchal structure in place. Um, so I think that that her relationship with Kostya is so important for this film as well. D- definitely. Um, and I was very excited to find this actor who played Kostya. He's, he's in Min- he lives in Minsk and he just was so uh, so wonderful to work with. Uh, but I wanted to leave some hope of, and of course he, 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 he represents that, that, like the, you know, that it's possible, uh, even though he, he goes into ether and probably has to come back to his family very soon. But there's this, uh, this desire for change. Um, um, and then you don't have to accept the old ways. Um, that's definitely something that was in Helga's in my eyes, mind, mind's mind. Yeah, no, I think you can feel that. At least I felt that hope at the end, you know, that's that's that little piece that gives you hope. Um, so at this point, I'm going to turn it over to audience questions. Um, so we have our first question from Ricardo Eid. He says, your personal story, uh, personal story is Velia's dream, getting a visa and going to America. Please, I would love to know how much of Velia's character is autobiographical and relates to your own story. So sweet. <laughs> um, it's not. It's not my story. I do have to say uh, that I've overheard the story. Uh, Historia is shared by several friends of mine, and that's why uh, you know sometimes it's a little bit clunky. I think I feel like if you were to come up with the story, it wouldn't be so complicated. You know, <laughs> the fake visa, the 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 number, the going, but it really happened. <laughs> um, 
and maybe the best gift that a friend of mine gave me was to say like yes I went to the small town and you do not want to know what happened <laughs> she kind of left it hanging and then over the years uh I kept asking her, like, it's a great idea for the film, but what happened to you in the small town? She wouldn't, she wouldn't say. And as I started working in the film, I've heard so many stories similar to this. Uh, and the, the, the craziest one is I have a friend who's also named Daria, uh, who is a DJ in Minsk, who's a very, who, who may, maybe applied and tried to lie on her American visa for, you know, five to six times. And she has like just the most uh, ridiculous, uh, um, you know, stories of, of how she tried to trick it. So, so it's uh, so it definitely spoke to a group of people. You know, of course, I uh, I myself was a yes, I was a DJ. I really loved house music. I came to America to go to school, to go to college. So I didn't. Uh, um, I'm not as crazy as as brave as Vela, but but I admire her. I really admire her. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I have another question here from Miguel Panabella. Um, at one point, Velia says that nothing changes in Belarus. Did you share that belief in the 1990s? And what kinds of changes have you seen since then? <clears throat> I do share that belief. Um, it's actually been quoted uh, quite a few times over this, over this election period. Um, I feel like maybe now, now there's, uh, there's a hope of change only right now. But it's been quite stagnant. It's just been like that. And, and maybe that's why the film has been relevant. <laughs> you know, two years ago, nothing has changed. Um, I, uh, it's only recently that uh, my parents who uh, are you know, active in Belarus that, that have made their political stance. So like now I'm a little bit more open uh, about talking about it because I just don't feel like, oh, um, you know, I also had the wonderful people who worked uh, with me on making this film and I was I was always afraid uh, for their safety. So I would always just like, just say this question is, just I could never answer this question, but yes, I, I do feel like nothing has changed. Wow. Okay. So yeah, very relevant then still today. Um, and hopefully, I mean, maybe one hopes it's not as relevant, but people will still look at it in the future as emblematic of a certain period. Um, so I have another question here from Janice Taylor. Uh, were you only thinking of this as an, this is going back to the sequence with Kostya um, and the sexual assault. So she asks, asks um, were you only thinking of this as an actual sexual assault or were you including it as a more symbolic statement of the culture there and the power plays within the politics? Um, could you, and then she also asked, could you also speak about the tattoo and all that mm -hmm. represents? Um, the tattoo represents um, that he was also a victim in, in the army. Uh, the tattoo says the bitch, Suka, which, which means that he was um, molested in the army. And so this is, he's like claim, claim, uh, he's like the Lang King trying to claim back his kingdom when he comes back. So the, in a way, the rape is inevitable from his point of view because he has uh, he has something to prove, you know, like he's a victim turned um, from from his psychology. And I know it's hard to read uh, when you don't know these cultural signifiers. Uh, and I just was, you know, I knew I knew it was going to be and he was going to be difficult. <laughs> mm. I mean, in terms of like, do you ever make symbolic movements, you know? Um, 
symbolic um, gestures in the film. Um, I tried to stay away from it. Like, I don't know if you ever um, go into making, a, telling a story and saying like, oh, I have this great metaphor. You always say, no, I have this great story. I have this great story of a girl who just wants to, to get out of her country and has a hard time doing it. You know, and I'm glad that it emerges and you could analyze these other things that emerge um, um, later on. Of course, I have something to say about the, the, the gender relations there, uh, how aggressive they are and how, how there's like the, the idea of consent is not, uh, is not something that, that, uh, that exists, you know, exists there or the way they use language and, and, um, and, and then what, um, um, you know, there's def definitely like, this is just opening up right now as a conversation. Um, but when I thought about symbols and metaphors, you know, I thought about uh, obviously Crystal Swan and how, how fragile she was uh, and this women that worked at the factory, you know, like the, you know, the, this, like how, how hard it is, you know, like just, just these marks on, the, uh, on a glass, you know, how violent it is and that she does emerge still as still together, you know, even though she's totally just like violently marked by this experience. Um, but you know that for me was more of a more like this potent uh potent metaphor um um of the film and then as i thought about crystal swan and swans i just you know there's like more and more we were finding with uh, with my director of photography we were thinking about the zeus who turned into a swan so he could molest leda you know mm -hmm. that's just like it's it's like a potent yeah there are all these myths um that um, maybe from this point of view, yes, that we suddenly discovered in the process of shooting that the swan wasn't Vela, the swan was Stefan, mm -hmm. who, who was who was like you know disguised in this disguised in this uh, um, you know I'm the, I'm your friend and I'm your friend and I understand you and I'm gonna join you in your in your to help you reach your dream. Wow, so Crystal Swan became just very generative almost <laughs> as a as an entity within the film. Um, so I have another question here from uh, Butterfly O'Shea. She says, the wedding scene where two women were pretending to be medical personnel who give fake medication to the groom is such a comic skit traditional for weddings in the 1990s from that culture or from Belarus. Definitely. Um, way back in the day when I just uh, dived into filmmaking, um, I went and I made a documentary about my best friend uh, getting married. He was 20. His uh, fiance was 21. And, you know, it's, it's the, with the absence of history, uh, because the history was wiped out by the communist regime, and in a way, all these traditional, for instance, Belarusian, uh, you know, songs, traditions that just... Um, uh, it wasn't something people practiced, so they came up with all these skits, <laughs> they, you know, like you know, uh, buying out the bride. Uh, um, so it was, it was basically like just lifted out from my documentary by by uh, by like Helga, who was like, "Oh my God, this is insane! Let's use this." Um, and so yeah, because it's just so absurd, it, uh, but it links to this absurdity of the whole society living in this. Uh, in between state, you know, they, they're selling these like wonderful crystal objects to survive. Uh, and yet there, it's like the mixture of high and low. Um, and there's just something there that I thought that this was, uh, was, was funny and sad, sad and painful and, uh, and, and, and beautiful. It's mm -hmm. so interesting because I know watching that, I, I, again, didn't know much about the cultural context. So it's interesting that it actually is very, you know, realistic or emblematic of something that would happen during that period. 
Um, so that's, that's great. Um, so I have another question here uh, from Emily. Um, she asks, uh, what is the role of color in the film? Um, perhaps more specifically, the role of color in framing Velia's journey. So it's interesting, you know, the journey, um, the journey to this particular picture um, of how, how the colors emerged. Um, when I started pitching the film, um, the story itself was so sad. <laughs> I mean, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, I didn't have Alina. Um, it was hard to imagine reading a script what this film would be like. Um, and so a lot of the, the feedback that I would get from Eastern European producers is like, um, there's a, almost a category of film that they call dark. It's so dark. It's black. You're going to make another black film. <laughs> and so, you know, it was almost like, but why, you know, my response to it was like, but why black? Why does it have to be black? And I started thinking about color. Um, and uh, obviously I never had, you know, you have to understand that, you know, when you go into feature film production, you suddenly have all these tools that you haven't had before. Uh, you can attempt them with short film, but, but suddenly you work with a whole other level of, um, of crew. That, that, you know, like you can, you can put something together and say like, this is ex like, I just want this. So um, I started looking at a lot of photography and, and I realized that, um, you know, first of all, like the first idea that emerged was like, of course, Vele is so bright and it stems from a story because she's a raver. Of course she dresses and that's, uh, that's what we did. We tried to, the subculture itself wanted to differentiate itself from from the the gray the gray city the great post-soviet city so you would just you know dress all yellow all blue all pink uh just something to say uh, you know i don't know you, you, you like i'm not you i'm different from you so that was the first idea and then i started and then we started karina started, and i started scouting and we saw a lot of color in the small villages in the small small house because you know because this, the reality was so gray you know they tried to assemble all these colorful details all at home sometimes to uh, kind of comical <laughs> comical proportion but there was such a desire to bright up your your experience um that we took it and said like okay this is this is the color that we want to use can we just you know lift it up a little bit and uh support it support it with uh um our our approach um, so I didn't necessarily assign, um, meaning to every color, but I just, I just thought that, okay, that, you know, like the red, a red obviously stands out, red and blue are the opposite colors that could, like, that could separate her, you know, cause that's how she feels on the inside. She feels so separate from everybody who's around her. And then, you know, that just kind of like lifts her up in, in her own eyes. Um, so that was the, that was the starting point and how it developed. Uh, but I love, you know, of course I love, I love color and I, and I, and I just really hope that there will be another opportunity to work this way. Yeah. I mean, and also the yellow, you know, she wears that bright yellow shirt and that also was just so, especially in the landscape, it was so vibrant, right? Um, it was really, really wonderful. I, uh, yeah. It was yeah. her own sweater, I have to say, that she wow. brought. <laughs> yeah. And then she, of course, mourned that sweater for the rest of the day. <laughs> like, you ruined my sweater. Oh, no. <laughs> some, something, something must have happened to it. Yeah, but it was, you know, red, yellow, uh, blue. You know, those mm -hmm. colors just seem, you know, the primary colors. And, and you know, they just... It's like what? What if we use them and 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 we uh, we combine them in the in the picture? Like what you know? What the experiment would look like? 
Mm-hmm. Especially in the contrast from the woman working in the factory as well, because they're wearing blue, but they're also wearing red, I believe, on their heads. But it's very different in terms of um, look compared to Velia. But there's still these colors, right? Yeah. She has the blue scarf and the blue, you know. And of course, um, you know, when you talked about careful framing, um, of course, it was a lot of careful um, collection of these locations of the uh, of the clothes because the production itself didn't have uh, the budget to build something. We had to find it, and uh, I was so lucky that uh, you know I, I had this premonition that Minsk didn't change much from as I said from from the '90s, and of course it did change. Uh, but you could still find these corners, right? The corners where the history was, uh, uh, you know, didn't ruin it, and and of course three by four helped <laughs> i was like i just don't move it looks like the 90s uh but i i mean i love that factory the factory uh it was really uh you know it was the blue was there it was painted in the 90s they didn't touch it uh, just like in the film it wasn't functioning uh um all year round they would have a couple of work days and then they would let their workers off um, so when we, when I saw that, I was just like, saw that green and blue, I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. <laughs> it's so interesting. Cause you see also like the turnstiles and the way they're putting in, you know, checking their cards and stuff. And it's so interesting. It's still around, you know, so you were able to just use that in the film without having to, you know, build something like you said, or, or refashion something. Um, so that's so interesting. Uh, we have another question here from Alexandra Noy. I don't know if that's how I pronounce it. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. Um, she says, hello to Daria and Hannah from a UCSB PhD student in the history department uh, and also native of Russia. Um, she's wondering if Daria could speak uh, of how she envisions the fate of her protagonist in early and mid 2000s. Um, she was not able to leave the US and had to stay in Belarus. Would she move to Russia and search for better opportunities as many Belarusians do? Uh, would she pursue her DJ career or her legal studies major? Would she get married and just forget about her dreams? So basically the future of Velia. Um, what do you think she would be doing after this? Hi. Um- <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a hard one. I imagine that uh, she would pursue her DJ career. I mean, the legal studies she does not care about. Um, yes, the, some of our young young people would go to Moscow, but um, I, I feel like Ukraine was more of a draw at the time. Um, also, you know, in early two thousands and with the impeding Orange Revolution, that was just kind of like wow. It seemed more more of a place to be. Um, and of course I hoped, you know, with the ending of the film, I do try to pose a question that maybe she would, uh, even though she stays, uh, that she would consider other options that, you know, you could pursue freedom in other, other ways that you don't have to, uh, leave your country to do it. And, and of course I'd want to see Vele right now on the streets in Minsk, <laughs> standing to vote for, for alternative opposition candidates. You know, I'd expect her to wake up and, uh, you know, do a rave for freedom. (laughs) There we go. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. She could bring back house music and make it even bigger now. (laughs) Um, So I have another question here from Catherine Nesky. Uh, can you comment on the mother figure, as in Velia's mother? Uh, is she a representative? Is she representative of nostalgia? She looks um, she also looks so Californian uh, with her practice of yoga. Oh, wow. Amazing. Um, uh, 
you know, right after the fall of Soviet Union, um, the culture was flooded with these esoteric, as at the time we thought, of course we don't, yoga is a part of just our daily life now, you know, we don't think of it as so strange. But at the time, it really felt strange, I have to say. And uh, we didn't know if we were to trust it. But because you didn't have, you know, Lenin to believe in, uh, now you could believe in, uh, you know, all kinds of um, um, other teachers um, from India or whatnot. So, so um, she does look, it was just, the again, the mixture of high and low. Like, it's just all mixed up and you don't know right from wrong. Uh, so at some points, like this is, you know, it's almost like, uh, uh, you know, you don't associate it with, you don't associate this very liberal yoga with a very conservative, you know, I'm, I, you know, I, you should stay in your country and I'm uh, patriotic and I believe in Soviet Union. But at the time, that was really the case at the time. Um, um, you know, and, and hello to anybody there out there who is Eastern European who remembers Kasparovsky and, and then crazy, uh, crazy uh, magicians who would try to hypnotize you through, through TV. That was like, that was a very popular thing at the time. Um, of course, there were like charlatans, but, you know, the old ladies who were, um, who grew up in Soviet Union, they really believed that that, that was true magic. Um, so yeah, even though she looks modern, uh, she represents this old way of thinking, you know, that, and that a lot of Belarusians think that way. I, I, not my mother, but definitely my grandmother. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, 25 years earlier. So, um, so it's quite possible that, that, uh, you know, someone her age would, would think that, um, and would, would channel, would channel this idea that, that you should belong to, you worry know, you were born you should stay here stay here now and make a difference here it's not i mean it's not a bad position to to have yeah well thank you um i think we have i mean one last question uh before we let you go um i wish we could stay here and talk for a lot longer um but i thought maybe you could share a little bit about some of your projects you're pursuing now um, or hope to pursue in the future thank you you know, I'm really interested in the fate of women who have um, lived through the breakup of the Soviet Union or were just born right after. So one of the projects I'm working on right now is a story, is a biopic of uh, several women who formed Femin. It's a Ukrainian radical movement. Um, and uh, I know we probably are more aware of Pussy Riot. Um, but Femin are the women who came up with this gesture of taking off their shirt and writing slogans on their naked body. Um, it now became an international movement. Uh, but at the time, um, it, was, it was quite controversial in Ukraine. It was not liked. Um, it emerged in 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, they eventually became refugees and went to Paris because they were accused of being a terrorist organization. Um, so it's kind of like a heartbreaking story about the women's friendship and betrayal and while they're just like taking on the world in this really major way. Um, I just, I just started getting interested in, in, um, different, different, the fates of very different women. Um, last year I made, um, TV series uh, called Gold Diggers, who are really about women who just thought that they could marry into and succeed this way. It's a it's a fictional TV series, a scripted TV series. Um, but I'm just trying to tackle this this uh, uh, femininity from different different points of view, um, and and see how it goes. And I'm very excited. Well, I think 
I, well, I can speak for probably many of us that we're very excited to see your future work because um, this film is just spectacular. I mean, that's why Sarah and I were so happy when you agreed to do this event. Um, I, I'm so happy I was able to share and it's, you know, like California just seems like another, you know, another part of the world. And, uh, and of course, not knowing the context, it's, it's just so lovely that this film translates and I'm, I'm really, really happy. Uh, and, and grateful to Santa Barbara International Film Festival also for showing it. Um, and uh, I, hope, I hope we see each other again. <laughs> yes, definitely. So that's the end of our time, unfortunately, for this interview. Again, I want to thank Daria for graciously agreeing to participate in this interview. Again, I'd also like to thank Sarah for helping uh, design this event. We are really a co-team. Um, and also the Carsey Wolf Center, of course, for creating this event. Um, and thank you to those of you that joined this conversation as well. And I hope everyone has a great evening. So goodbye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Follow, <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> find the film I do have an Instagram account for the film if you guys want to follow the news or share share with your friends it's crystal swan film on Instagram and I'd be happy to answer your questions further if you have them if you still have them uh, they're left uh, the thank, you. thank you thank you thank you okay bye you've been listening to a podcast by University of California television for more information about this program or UCTV visit us online at uctv.tv